All right, good morning, guys. Good morning. Great to see everyone this morning on this beautiful, chilly morning. Uh, Go ahead and begin turning to Matthew chapter 18. If you're not already there, we're going to pick it back up from where we left, left off last week. If you're new to School of the Word, or if you've not been here in a while, we've just been slowly plodding along through our way, uh, our way through the Gospel of Matthew for a little over a year now. I had to go back and look, but it's actually been a year. Uh, the good news is we're making progress, believe it or not. We're, we're over halfway through, and if the Lord wills, we're going to finish chapter 18 today. So we are making progress. Let me, uh, let me open us in prayer, and then we will get to work. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for this, another opportunity to come together as your people under the authority of your word. Lord, this passage we're going to be looking at today is perhaps familiar to most of us, and so I ask that you would grant we see it afresh this morning. Let us hear your voice afresh in our lives. And and Lord, it's been a a burden and an encouragement for me that you have set before us this morning by your providential hand the topic of forgiveness. As we enter a season of the year when many of us will be reminded of the fallenness of this world by the strain and, and even brokenness of relationships. So Lord, I am confident and I'm expecting something big from you this morning, something far more exceeding than we even know to ask. So Lord, would you grant by your word and through your spirit that we would hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I've given us a tongue twister this morning. If you look there at your handout. A mandate for mercy from a merciful master. Say that a few times to get your minds engaged. The The passage we're looking at, we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 35, is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Very familiar passage, but as usual, let's let's make sure we get our bearings about the context before we just jump in. You will remember that Jesus has been slowly focusing more and more on his disciples, focusing in on teaching them and preparing them for his departure. And then specifically, he's been teaching them about his kingdom. You remember back in chapter 13, the series of parables about the kingdom. And here in chapter 18, we've seen that this whole chapter is really all about the kingdom, how the kingdom functions in terms of us doing life together as the body of Christ, as the church, how to live and function as children of the kingdom. And in a sense, Jesus has been targeting some, some wrong assumptions that the disciples have and that we have about the kingdom. He's been re-educating the disciples about kingdom values. At the beginning there, in chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, you remember that this whole discourse was kicked off by a question. It was a question about greatness within the kingdom. And if you remember that, Jesus, he responded basically, you, you've missed it. You've, you've missed it completely. Greatness in my kingdom is becoming lowly in submission and and counting others more than yourself. And and when you take your sins seriously and the sins of others seriously, he's been resetting expectations quite radically at times, calling us to a higher understanding about kingdom life. And so Jesus had said in verse 15 that Pastor Ronald covered last week, he said, 
if your brother sins against you. And he went on to explain the process of dealing with sin in the corporate life of the body and why it is absolutely critical for us to go after one another in the hopes of restoration. But Peter has picked up on something here. He's listening. And, and when Jesus, it seems, pauses to catch, catch his breath, Peter's going to step in and ask the second question of this chapter, and it's going to drive the remainder of our focus today. So look at verses 21 and 22, and a question of limits. Chapter 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Now, Peter had heard how we should be concerned about the loss of a brother or sister from the fellowship due to sin, and how we are to deal with those cases. But, but he's thinking through the implications of what he's heard Jesus just say. He, it seems like he's being very practical here. He wants to know, how many times am I going to have to do this? How many times am I to forgive my brother or sister? And so perhaps this is a reasonable question. But does it align with kingdom thinking? And we don't know for sure what brought the number seven to Peter's mind, but early rabbinic practice had actually taught that three times was sufficient. So according to this custom, you weren't required to forgive someone beyond the third time. And, so, and Peter likely had that on his mind when he said seven. But of course, he had also been spending time with Jesus and learning how Jesus did things. And so he, he, of course, would have expected Jesus to be generous. Jesus will exceed that three times, no doubt. And so he said, I'm going to shoot high. I'm, I'm going I'm to double the norm and add one just to show my big heart here. Seven times. That should be more than enough, right, Jesus? But as, as usual, Jesus sees through the question to the heart behind it. He sees through to a heart that has not fully understood the differences in God's kingdom. He perhaps sees through to a legalism that wants to know where the limits are. Where, where are the boundaries? Where's the line I can't cross so I know how far just I can edge up to it before I get in trouble? And, and perhaps that, that type of thinking resonates with some of us. But we need to see that Jesus does not commend that type of thinking. Matter of fact, he's, he's going to shatter it. Look back at verse four, uh, 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Now some of your, ver- some of your versions may, may say seventy times seven, which is of course four hundred and ninety. It's been debated as to which more accurately reflects what Jesus is saying here, but, but let's not get caught up in that specific number other than its extravagance. Don't look at this and say, aha, Jesus put a number to it. Jesus put a number to it. No, whether it's 77 or, or 490, we should not look at this and do something like keep a tally on folks. Like a, a husband or a wife, you say, all right, I'm... I'm going to forgive you, but you need to know you only have five left, so plan accordingly. No, this is not timeouts in a football game where we have to be strategic on how to use them. Jesus' point in using such a high number is that we should not count at all. 
No limit. No keeping tack, a tally. No, no keeping track. But instead, be willing to forgive generously without limit. It's as though Jesus is telling Peter, your, your expectations of me are far too small. Too limited. Too constrained. You're not understanding how truly different my ways are from the world. Have you ever pictured a place in your mind, you've, you've never been to, but you've pictured it, maybe you've seen it on TV or a picture of it, you've pictured it as being a certain way, only to get there and see it in person and it's just different? The reality is something different than what you expected it to be? There's a scene at the end of the book, The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis. It's the final book in the, the Narnian series where the, the last Narnian king, King Tyrion, He's in a battle for his life, and he's forced to retreat into this small wooden stable. And I'm, I'm going to skip a lot of the story here, but after some things happen, he realizes that even though he's just entered the stable door, he's not in a stable. He's actually come into a different world altogether, and it turns out to be Aslan's country. And he meets the high kings and queens there. And I want to read a piece of that this morning. It says, Tyrion looked round again and could hardly believe his eyes. There was the blue sky overhead and grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction and his new friends all around him laughing. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling to himself, that the stable scene from within and the stable scene from without are two different places. Yes, said the Lord Diggory, its inside is bigger than its outside. Yes, said Queen Lucy, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. And a little bit later, as they're exploring this new realm, they're commanded to come further up. Come further in. The further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. And in a sense, that's what Jesus is saying here. Come further up. Peter, come further in. My kingdom is not what you expect it to be. Let me show you how much bigger my thinking is, how much more extravagant my ways are. And so Jesus' Jesus' answer here, it's stunning. It no doubt shocked the disciples when they heard such a high number and realized that Jesus was saying that we are to forgive without limit. I can hear some of the questions beginning to spin in their mind because they spin in my mind. How can you expect us to forgive without limit, Jesus? What if they just keep doing the same thing? What if it's really, really bad what they do to us? Well, instead of letting those questions get asked, Jesus intends to get at the root of the issue. Forgiveness is such a critical piece of what it means to be a Christian. It's the centerpiece of our faith. It's what brings us into a right relationship with God. And so Jesus is going to move past some of the what-if questions and focus instead on the heart of the matter by giving us this parable. And for the sake of just noticing some of the big ideas, I've broken it down into three parts. But just as a reminder, when, when we approach a parable... A parable is not an allegory in the sense that every little detail means something, symbolizes something. We shouldn't go start digging for hidden meaning in all the details. 
there's typically one or two big main points that Jesus is trying to communicate, and he never intends to cover a topic exhaustively with these short stories. So with that in mind, let's look at verses 23 to 26 as Jesus starts with an unpayable debt. Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Now the, the setting of this story would have certainly been relatable to the disciples. They would have understood that a king had uh, given some of his servants certain duties, and that some of those duties were financial, uh, fina- financially related duties, and that the king had come to settle his accounts. All of that would have been well and good. But the thing that would have made the disciples' mouths drop open is this amount owed by this particular servant. Just to keep things simple here, a single talent, one single talent, was an amount equal to about 20 years' worth of wages. That's one talent. But Jesus says this servant owed 10,000 talents. In, in modern vernacular and worth, Jesus is saying something like, he owed billions of dollars. One commentator I read said, this is the equivalent of 193,000 years worth of wages. Let that sit on you for just a moment. 193,000 years worth of wages. This is staggering. This is clearly a debt beyond any possibility of being repaid. It's an unpayable debt. And that's the point. Just like this servant, we have no ability, no ability to repay our debt to God because of our sin. But does that reality really land on us? Do we, do we skim over the, the magnitude of those four little words there in verse 25? He could not pay. Do we, do we read that and just skim on? Move on to the rest of the story? But I, I think we need to slow down here just a moment and, and really focus in on what Jesus is saying because I fear we think of our inability, our sinful condition far too lightly these days. We're good at softening the blow of our condition by downplaying how bad off we truly are. We think of sins in the plural, right, as a a list of something not to do. We're good at saying that's a sin and that's a sin and that's a sin instead of sin as the internal bent of our hearts. We think of sin as something we merely do, and it is that. Sin is something we do, but that kind of thinking can lead to missing the severity of our condition before God. It doesn't capture the reality of this unpayable debt. And the reality is that apart from God's grace, our very nature, our entire posture toward God is one of enmity. In our fallen condition, we stand separated from God, enemies against Him in every way unable to turn to Him. And I know that goes against the feel-good 
Oprah talking points of the day that deep down folks are really just good people. Deep down folks are just okay. But I want to try to quickly paint a picture of humanity's plight apart from God's grace. And I've given you a couple of verses listed there in your notes. Romans 14.23 says, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. Now listen. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Now think of this world, and it's 7 billion plus people in it. All living life. Think about all of the unbelievers in this world. Doing life, living, without the faith that Paul is referring to. Which means, according to this verse, they are all living in constant sin. To just put it bluntly, all believers do is sin. That can be hard to hear. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In other words, it's sin to leave God out of the ordinary affairs of your life. Sin is anything we don't do for the glory of God. So let me ask you, what do believer, unbelievers, excuse me, what do unbelievers do for the glory of God? Before you were saved, what were you doing for the glory of God? The answer is nothing, my friends. Nothing. Nothing an unbeliever does is from faith. Nothing someone who's lost does is to the glory of God. Everything we do apart from God's grace comes from a heart that is cold and distant from God. Which means, if you think about it, this world is awash in sin. It's mind-boggling to consider how dark this world must look from God's perspective. We all, each and every one of us, has committed treason against the High King, against our Creator, God, and we are unable to pay or work our way out of this debt. Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight. This is our predicament. And this is what Jesus is showing us with this servant's unpayable debt. And the reason I'm spending so much time on it this morning, taking just a few extra minutes, is because if we don't see how truly massive our offense is to God, His forgiveness, it just won't stun us. We won't be awed. We won't be overwhelmed. And so what does the king do? Verse verse 25, what does he do? He orders the servant and his family to be sold to recoup some of his losses. And as bad as that might sound to us today, that would have been accepted as normal business. It would have been accepted as just to sell this man and his family to retrieve some of the the losses, to settle the account. But look what Jesus says the servant does in verse 26. The servant fell on his knees, imploring his master, have patience with me and I I will pay you everything. Of course, the servant had no possible means to repay this debt. But he was absolutely helpless and he had no other option than to cry out for mercy. And look at verse 27 now. As Jesus shows us just that. An undeserved mercy. Verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him 
the debt. Just like that. The King James Version says, Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Are you kidding me? Talk about a story that would go viral today. I can just see the little video clip that they would make for this. He just forgave the debt? How how is that even possible? He just wiped the books clean? Just like that. He canceled all that debt. Come on, Jesus. Come on. This is too good to be true. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. A portion of it there is in your notes. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. No, my friends, this, this is not too... This is not too good, uh, too good to be true. It's the gospel. Verse 27 is the reason Jesus can look His disciples straight in the face and say, forgive without limit. Verse 27 is the reason Jesus can say to His disciples back in chapter 5, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 27 is the reason the Apostle Paul can say in Ephesians 4, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And it's the reason he can say in Colossians 3.13, If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. Verse 27 is why we are to move toward those who hurt us. It's why we as Christians are called to show mercy where mercy is undeserved. Verse 27 literally changes everything. The gospel changes everything. It's both the reason and the source for why we are commanded and why we are able to offer forgiveness without limit. It's, it's the wellspring of grace and mercy. And if you've tasted its sweetness, if you've tasted this, you know why Jesus answered Peter's question the way He did. But if not, if, if you're hearing these commands... And they're making you feel like you're going to have to try to pay back a debt you can't repay. If, if the idea of showing undeserved mercy seems distant, if it seems unreachable, maybe your story hasn't included a verse 27. And if it hasn't, everything won't be changed. These commands to love your enemy, to put away all malice and anger, they will weigh you down. You know you can't do them on your own. We need the unpayable debt paid for us. We need verse 27. But if you don't see a verse 27 in your, in, in your uh, story, 
it would be a sweet release for you this morning just to admit that to the Lord. Even right here in school, the Word, with a substitute teacher, you could do that. You could admit that to the Lord, and it would be good. It would be sweet. Seven times, no, Peter, I I do not say to you seven times. I'm talking about being so affected, so changed, so swallowed up in my mercy. You can't help but hold back the mercy from others. Aren't you glad verse 27 is there? But Jesus is not finished with His story. Look at verses 28 to 33. And what an ungrateful heart looks like. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Now once again, the disciples would have immediately focused in on this amount, the amount owed. And this time it's, it's nothing compared to the 10,000 talents. It's 100 denarii. A denarius was about one day's wage for a laborer, so we're talking a few months, several months worth of wages here. Peanuts compared to what this servant had just had wiped clean from his account. And so as the disciples were hearing this, as we hear this, The reaction, the seizing and choking and refusing to show mercy, throwing his fellow servant into debtor's prison. They no doubt, and we are outraged at this. What an ungrateful heart. Does he not realize the depth of mercy he's just been shown? Do we? Do we really realize the depth of mercy we've just been shown? When we withhold forgiveness, what are we saying about how we value the forgiveness we've been given? What are we saying about our own hearts when we refuse to show mercy to those who have wronged us? Or even more, what are we saying about what it took for God to extend that forgiveness to us? Namely, the shed blood of Christ. In giving this parable, Jesus clearly thought that if we grasped the significance and nature of God's forgiveness, it would compel us to offer forgiveness to others. So if you think about it, when a a Christian refuses to offer forgiveness, we're saying the cross just isn't enough. It's, It's just not big enough to swallow up my bitterness and anger. Oh, I'm willing to sing about amazing grace, but if it comes down to me showing that grace to others, well, it's not that amazing. God forbid, friends. Our unwillingness to forgive also means we doubt God's ability to ultimately and finally administer justice as He sees fit. We doubt He is a perfect judge. Romans 12, 19 
says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But when we, when we hold on to angerness and bitterness, fundamentally we think if we release that person from our debt, an injustice will have occurred. We're saying, I have to hold this against them because if I don't, no one else will. If I release them from this debt, no one will know about my pain or suffering. But God knows. God knows more intimately than you could ever possibly imagine. And the wrong you suffered angers Him more than it will ever anger you. So we need to ask ourselves, are we willing to let it be enough that God knows? God says vengeance is His. Do you believe Him? Do you believe Him? Do you believe that one day all wrongs will be righted for you as a child of God? Do you believe that one day God will perfectly administer His justice right up into the corner of our lives, not missing one instance of our being wronged or hurt or abused? Or do you suppose that it would be better if we in our faulty sense of justice are stumbling about? It would be better if we try to take things into our own hands. Would that be better? I've heard it said that to hold a grudge is to doubt the judge. That's a cute saying, but it's true. This is not a small issue. Our response to how others wrong us shows in living color how we understand our forgiveness from God. And Jesus is going to emphasize this. Look back at verse 32 to 34. Verse 32 says, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. I love the simplicity of Jesus' parables. All that debt. There's a couple of points here to be made, specifically with regard to verse 33. The first is that this is an argument from the greater to the lesser. The lesser debt certainly should have been forgiven in light of the massive debt. The, the forgiveness we're commanded to give and expected to give will always pale in comparison to the forgiveness God bestowed on us. Let me just say that again so you get it. The forgiveness we're commanded to give will always pale in comparison to the forgiveness God has extended to us. Always. But let me also say, that in no way is meant to demean or lessen the severity of the wrong you may have suffered. It just points to how truly tremendous God's forgiveness is. I really appreciate how Pastor Ronald stressed the simplicity of this teaching last week and yet the difficulty in, in carrying some of this stuff out. This is straightforward teaching. It's, it's clear. There's no uh, question as to what Jesus is saying to us, but that doesn't mean forgiveness is easy. There are things that happen to us at the hands of other human beings 
that are truly life-shattering. Things that bring the gears of life to a screeching halt. So I'm not talking about life being a rose garden here. Please don't hear me say this is easy. I will, however, say that much of what passes for offenses these days shouldn't. Our culture of microaggressions, if you've heard of that word, microaggressions and being offended by every little thing, many of which we have no involvement in, we just feel like being offended, that's not what Jesus is addressing here. It's not what Jesus is addressing. I I think if someone like Paul were to encounter some of the nonsense we encounter in our day, he he would probably say something like, get over yourself. (laughs) Or or, get thee over thyself if you... (laughs) You prefer the King James. But that actually brings me to my second point here about verse 33. And it's this. Biblical forgiveness, what Jesus is pointing to, assumes there's actually something to be forgiven. Something that rates mercy, i.e. sin. And there's plenty of actual sin to go around that needs forgiveness without muddying the waters with every little offense. The lesser debt owed was certainly peanuts in light of the massive debt, but it was still a debt. It was real. It had consequences. And, and we need to be ready to walk through these, uh, these issues with each other. But I'm not sure we always give each other biblical advice here. Multiple places in Scripture, and I've quoted a couple of them already, Ephesians 4.32, Colossians 3.13, and, and right here in verse 33. Teach us that our forgiveness is to imitate God's forgiveness. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And what did the Master give us his reason for showing mercy? Verse 32. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Now, I'm going to stay very close to my notes here because I want to be very careful about what I say. So listen closely. Notice that forgiveness in its fullest sense, that's a key phrase here, in its fullest sense, is presented as a transaction between two parties, having as its goal full restoration, full reconciliation. Chris Bronze in his book, Unpacking Forgiveness, defines God's forgiveness like this. A commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to Him. Although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. Accordingly, Full forgiveness, we're talking about the complete transaction. Full forgiveness happens when there is repentance and pardon. This should be our goal. Full repentance, full pardon, full reconciliation. That's the model. That's what we should seek. Someone sins against us, we go to them. Moving intentionally toward them, that's our burden. We move intentionally toward them with grace and love in hopes that they repent and rejoin us, restored in the relationship. But what does forgiveness look like if they don't repent? What happens when the person who wronged you, 
and, and let, let me be very clear here. I'm talking about actual significant wrong. What happens if, if they never admit it? If they never say, I'm sorry. Well, consider this. If the servant had not pleaded with his master, according to verse 32, would there have been mercy shown? No. He, along with his family, would have been sold. So the question becomes, does God hold us to a higher standard than He holds Himself? Does God unconditionally forgive every human being? Meaning, everyone goes to heaven? No. Is there a condition? Yes. John Piper is helpful here. I'm going to read a quote. Forgiveness of an unrepentant person... I didn't put this in your notes, by the way. Forgiveness of an unrepentant person doesn't look the same as forgiveness of a repentant person. In fact, I am not sure that in the Bible the term forgiveness is ever applied to an unrepentant person. Jesus said in Luke 17, verses 3 to 4, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. So there's a sense in which full forgiveness is only possible in response to repentance. Now, now what does this mean practically? Because I know this is probably different than what some of you may be used to. What does this mean? It means this. Because of the mercy shown us, we are to be overflowing with mercy for others. Full of forgiveness. Eager to intentionally move towards someone who has wronged us. Fully ready to forgive if the opportunity comes. It also means we are to come to a point, please pay attention to this, we are to come to a point by God's grace where this is settled. Meaning we have released the person from any condemnation, from any anger in our own hearts, from any bitterness or malice or ill will toward them to the point that we can actually desire God's very best for that person. So how do you know if you've, you've met this? Well, can you look at that person and say, I wish God's best for you. I hope God blesses you abundantly and mean that from your heart. Again, Piper, even when a person does not repent, we are commanded to love our enemy and pray for those who persecute us and do good to those who hate us. The difference is that when a person who wronged us does not repent with contrition and confession and conversion, meaning turning from sin to righteousness, he cuts off the full work of forgiveness. We can still lay down our ill will. We can hand over our anger to God. We can seek to do Him good, but we cannot carry through reconciliation or intimacy. Now I want to stress again how difficult some of these things can be. When we're dealing with motives and heart conditions and relationships are at stake, we do well to stay firmly planted in God's Word. Seeking His will. Praying without ceasing that these matters be resolved. Praying for those people who are involved. And certainly, when the need arises, come to seek the counsel of one of our pastors here at this church. This is not a, an easy issue. But we need to notice one more thing here about verse 34. 
There is a seriousness we need to pay attention to to the master's response. The ESV uses the word jailers here in verse 34. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers. The, the word there is actually the word for torturers or tormentors. His master delivered him to the torturers because of his lack of forgiveness. And he didn't just deliver him to the torturers. He left them there until he should pay all his debt. Well, what have we already noticed about the debt? It's unpayable. Meaning this confinement to the torturers is to be unceasing. It's to be without end. Jesus never flinched when He talked about hell. Jesus never flinched when He talked about hell. It's, it's one of the most difficult doctrines to consider, in my opinion. But Jesus wants us to be sobered by this reality. He, he said it for a reason. He wants us to be sobered by the thought of an unending torment. So let's not breeze past this. But we come now to the end in verse 35. And Jesus is going to conclude this discourse, this chapter, with a mandate for mercy. But before we read this last verse, before we look at it, we've broken this parable down into sections and, and we've walked our way slowly through it. But by doing that, I've made it a little harder for us to hear how the disciples would have heard it as a solid flowing narrative. And I I point this out because Jesus is using a a very effective teaching method here. I would call it a Nathan-esque parable. What do I mean by that? You remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where God sends the prophet Nathan to confront King David about his adultery about the subsequent murder of Uriah. And Nathan tells David this parable about a poor man and his precious little ewe lamb. And he draws David into the story, tugging at his emotions, drawing out his anger when he learns that a rich man has come and taken this little lamb and killed it to prepare for a visitor. David had proclaimed judgment on the man. And then Nathan, in dramatic fashion, looked David in the eye and said, You are the man. And Jesus has done something very similar here. He's drawn us into the story. He has stirred our emotions in the right places. We rejoice with the servant as his massive debt is forgiven, right? We rejoice only to be outraged by his treatment of his fellow servant. We condemn his hypocrisy and then we nod in agreement as this wicked servant is handed over to the torturers. Justice has been done, we say to ourselves. And then just as Nathan had dropped the bomb on David, Jesus does the same to his disciples. He does the same to us. And so now let's look at verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. So here's our mandate. A mandate for mercy. 
But notice that it is non-negotiable. The same principle has already been given back in Matthew's Gospel, uh, back in chapter 6, excuse me. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Do you see how, how serious forgiveness is in the life of a believer? Forgiveness defines us. It, it's what makes us who we are. We are the forgiven. But if that reality doesn't transfer from the vertical out to the horizontal, we've missed it. Literally, we've missed it. But make sure you understand what Jesus is not saying here. Jesus did not just become a works righteousness preacher. He's not saying that you earn forgiveness by forgiving others. It's not what Jesus is saying. Like, like God is waiting for us to forgive, and then He will forgive us. When Christians hear a warning like this from our Lord, or in other places in Scripture, the, the if-then statements... He intends for us to actually heed the warning. It's surprising. He actually intends for us to heed the warning. He actually intends for us to look within ourselves and see if we're withholding mercy. And if so, allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, leading us to repent. It's like warning signs on a highway traveling down the highway and you see a warning sign. Danger up ahead. The bridge is out. Do not continue in this direction. Now, now true believers, born again, regenerate believers, we see the signs, we, we take them seriously, we heed the warnings and we turn around to safety. But someone who sits in a setting like this, a school of the word setting, or a sermon downstairs, and here's the warning. They see the sign. They read verse 35, but by their unwillingness to turn around, they prove they are headed for disaster. It's that significant. The point that Jesus concludes with, and it's what we will conclude with this morning, and it's a solemn note, but we will trust the Lord in His wisdom to have ended this passage in such a way. The point is that a heart that refuses to forgive is evidence of a heart that has not been forgiven. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of this parable. A heart that refuses to forgive is evidence of a heart that has not been forgiven. Forgiveness flows from hearts that are satisfied in the mercy of God. We rejoice in the full and complete cancellation of our debt. We rejoice in the gospel. And so as we approach the holidays, where many of us will be reminded of the fallenness of this world, the brokenness of this world with strained and in some cases flat out failed relationships. 
Let's take this message of forgiveness with us. Let's take it with us as we walk out this door and seek to apply it where God leads us. All right, well, next week we will pick up in chapter 19 as the Lord wills. Thank you, guys.